Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to India Game Changer. Today, we are joined by Pritam Datta, the founder and CEO at Zoth. I hope I pronounced that right, .io. Your friends call you PD. I like it. It's almost like PhD. Maybe that's what they're shortening it for. Yeah, Pritam uh, also means lover boy. So <laughs> I had a very good time when I was single. So I want to know this though. I believe that names always have meaning at some level, right? Like most parents, except for mine, right? Because my name is Michael, like it couldn't be more generic. I know when I was born, my parents were like, I, I just don't care what you call him, just Michael, whatever the basic name is, is fine. But your parents were thinking about it. And I have a daughter and I was thinking about her name too. Her name is Kyla. And if you look at the Japanese characters, because her mom's Japanese, it means umi, which is ocean, and tanoshi, which means happy. So my wife and I loved the ocean, so we named our daughter partially after that, Kaila. So your parents named you Lover Boy. <laughs> Why? Primarily because what my mother explained to me that you have came out of love, so you know we want you to spread love. I love it. I named my daughter Prisha. Prisha is basically a goddess of benevolence. I like it. I like it. But this is the other thing too. So one of the things, remember, I've been in Asia for 30-something years, right? So very few of the people to whom I speak have a name that is familiar to me from when I was growing up. Does that make sense? Right? So when I was a kid, I didn't know anybody named Kyla. I didn't know anybody named Pritam, right? Because I just, I grew up in Connecticut and Pennsylvania. So forgive me for that. But I do believe, but I do believe that when parents name their kids, that there's a reason why. And that's why I think that names are super important. And I'd like to try to pronounce them properly, just out of respect for the effort that people put into it. Anyway. And you clearly thought about it when you named your daughter as well, just like we did. Look, before we get into the main part of our conversation, I want to get more of your background for some context. So tell me a little bit more about you. Yeah, currently building Zo.io. It's a platform where you can buy tokenized assets. So imagine buying real estate art for $100 and then be able to sell, buy, sell, trade it across our marketplace or other exchanges. Prior to that, I was leading uh, innovation and ventures at Enhauser Bush, or famously known as uh, owner of brands like Budweiser and Corona, where I set up fintech ventures, led web initiatives, and also as a side hustle, started an investment network called Eagleton Ventures, where we started with investing in startups, but then you know we realized the potential of you know, pooling investment together and buying real assets like real estate, art, etc. And that's how the whole Zoth uh, community was born. Uh, that's how the whole idea of Zoth was born. So can you just walk me through this? And maybe we can do this a little bit together because I want people to understand this. I think about, and I'll get to this concept in a second, but I think about this concept a lot when people like you build a platform around investing mm -hmm. in alternative assets. Can we just go back to like, I don't know, the 1940s or the 1930s. Seriously, because I think we have to go that far back to understand this original idea that stock and bond trading should be available to more people, right? So if you don't want to go through that progression, I can tell you the way I think it happened, but maybe you can tell me the way you think it happened and how we got to today. Because I think without putting it, Zoth into context and why it matters, that we lose a little bit of the story. Is that fair? Yep, perfect. The New York Stock Exchange, right? And again, I'm going to look at this from a U.S. perspective, but I think the NYSE is something that most people that listen to this will understand. You literally had guys and gals standing on the corner of Wall Street and Broad Street, right? 
outdoors before there was a physical exchange that just saying, I think the value of this company or that company is worth X and that's where I'm willing to buy and sell it. And as it got more institutionalized, then you had mutual funds. And mutual funds said, don't try to figure out what has value and what doesn't. Let us do that for you, right? Because they had more access to information and more access to the actual buying and selling as well because you have to be a member on the exchange to do that. And they said, look, there is a value gap here between what people understand and where the real value is, and we'll help you do that. A little bit of an arb, right? And then in the 80s, you had the mortgage-backed securities come where the guy was like, you know what? We can take all these mortgages and package them. Some of them won't be great. Some of them will be. But overall, the package itself will be great. And the yield there is higher. Now you got into this concept of we're not yield chasing, but there is a place in the world where yields are better, and we want to make sure that you get access to them. Right, so securitization happened. And then hedge funds came along and said, why do we just need to buy stuff? If we can finance the purchase of Apple by selling IBM, we should do that all day. Yeah. Right, so there's been this constant search for yield. And now crypto says, wait a second, not only can we help you get a, a search for yield in kind of the same way we've been doing forever because there is an arbitrage in information and in access, but we can also fractionalize it too, which means that now everybody can invest. Do I have this progression right? Yeah, you have this progression right. What I do add to that is, you know, see, the thing is, I believe in long-term wealth creation. Yep. I started with, for example, started with investing for as low as $100 a month myself 15 years ago, and then gradually created a community of investors and we started investing in asset classes like startups, etc. Now, crypto as an asset class is highly volatile. I did invest part of my um, investment, but what I also felt that, you know, any get rich quick scheme is sustainable. Exactly. And during my journey, one of the things I realized is that, you know, any asset which doesn't have an underlying financial activity behind it sooner or later would have a problem as we ran our successful investment network one thing came into our uh, you know based on our experience is that one way you have this highly volatile asset cast which is being sold as cryptocurrencies but if you look at the core of it the technology behind it is you can create small fractions of an asset how do i combine it with illiquid asset assets which have real value which are tangible income generating assets yep. but maybe you know maybe it's not available to the common public because of the cost to acquire say a real estate is in millions of dollars the cost to acquire a quality art is you know even expense even higher and combine the two and create investment products which have an underlying value can be acquired at a fraction of the cost and can be brought and sold and traded. So what at Zoth, what we are trying to do is basically bringing the concept of tokenization to real world assets, which historic can be illiquid, but bringing that liquidity, bringing that flexibility that stocks or any other assets classes have. So you bring up a bunch of really interesting points here. I think it was Warren Buffett probably sometime this year sitting next to Charlie Munger who was like, look, I would buy 1% of all the farmland in America for $10 billion. I don't really care because I know that when it's done, there's going to be some output there that I can then use. There's going to be some kind of yield. I'll buy a, a railroad that nobody wants to buy. I'll buy 1% of every apartment place in the United States if you, yeah. if you tell me I can buy it for $10 billion because that 1% is going to turn into a trillion dollars of income 
for me, and there's something behind exactly. it that's generating revenue. And you're right. And I'm so exactly. glad you said this because for me, investing in Dogecoin, which has no underlying assets, is very different than using the crypto technology to invest in real estate, which does, but it's doing two things. And you said both of them. One is it's giving access, but the fractionalization side of it democratizes it, for lack of a better word, because now it allows everybody. And I want you to comment on this too, because this is actually super important to me. You said, I started investing $100 a month. It feels completely irrelevant. A hundred bucks is not going to change anybody's life. But again, a few things come into play here. One is every time you invest $100 a month, you get the benefit of compounding over time, over 20 years. That's the first thing. But second of all, it also is like brushing your teeth. Like if you don't brush your teeth on Tuesday, it's not a big deal. But if you do yeah. it every day, it changes the way your teeth progress. And it's the same thing for investing. So do you want to talk a little bit about why starting small is really important and then how it educates you into getting bigger and better at this? Yeah. So for example, I started my investment journey 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. One of the things which I believe is that you should always, always invest before you spend. Yeah. The reason I that, you know, people, people, most of the people correlate money with spending that I earn more, I spend more. What I strongly believe that, and you know, it's a famous author called Ecology of Money, Mr. Morgan Housel has also written about it. Wealth gives you freedom and you do not need a lot of wealth to have freedom. No. And that's what people do not correlate to. If my expenses are low and I have enough money to cover myself for three, four years, imagine the freedom as an individual I would have to go and do things which I want to do. And that's the freedom money gives and that's the freedom I honestly think people should aim for because, you know, there is no point buying material things one after the other. Right. They can give you temporary happiness, but the real happiness is to be able to do what you want to do when you want to do it. And that's what everybody should aim for. So I like to let my guests unbeknowingly give a title to their own episode. And what I do is I try to take the most pithy thing they've said from our conversation. And that's definitely always invest before you spend. Like, I don't know what else we should do. We should shut down this whole podcast now because that's the title. I want to ask you about this too, because you, men you mentioned some key words. How do you ensure, right? Because liquidity is based on the fact that there's limited information asymmetry and that enough people have access to it to actually buy and sell these securities and understand where the value is, right? So like price discovery is super important for this, but liquidity is something that is based on a large amount of participation. I have to be confident that if I buy something, I can sell it whenever I want. And then if I want to buy it, I can buy it whenever I need to because there's enough liquidity at every price point that means when I do buy or sell, I don't impact the market. How do you affect that? Specifically coming to what we are doing at Zoth, I yep. think what we fundamentally believe is we are bringing new asset classes. We are bringing same asset classes and we are bringing new paradigm to that. So imagine bringing a asset class like a real estate. It is historically illiquid yep. because of acquisition. The moment I break it down into fraction, the cost of acquisition reduces and there are more participants. The second part is the moment I make it 
in smaller ticket sizes and i am able to make it a globalized asset rather than a localized geographically localized assets i have more participants who can play a role in buying selling and trading of that asset but the most important part which blockchain or crypto technology allows me to build defi on top what is defi yep. defi enables me build uh, protocols which enable people to buy small ticket sizes of large assets and then basically earn yields on top of them do lending on top of them and do buying selling on top of them which you know in traditional finance is not possible and that's what i feel that we are bringing the same boring asset class but bringing historical uh, i would say changing the paradigm of framework around it how does the can we talk a little bit as well about how the community matters or why the community matters, particularly in a DeFi scenario? And in that sense, I mean this. There's a financialization taking place of almost every asset and things that people didn't even consider assets in the past, right? The whole world is being financialized. And I think it's being led by this ability to fractionalize things, right? In other words, before, like you said, a house is so expensive, regular people couldn't buy it. And now they yeah. can. So even like somebody else's house, I can buy a piece of somebody else's hotel, somebody else's resort, somebody else's car, like everything can be fractionalized, which means everything can be financialized and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. But how does the tokenization, I'm really curious how you feel about this. How does the tokenization then allow you to give benefits to people that invest in it? Right. So I get like a discounted room where I can rent the car whenever I want to. How does that play into the decentralized finance and the stuff that Zoth is trying to accomplish by making investment easier for other people to do and more frictionless. So first of all, having tokenization brings transparency. So you are uh, bringing a clear view of the asset, the price of the asset, what is the market value of asset and what it also does is bring, you know, it, it doesn't allow price manipulation because if there are more participants of an asset, the true value of the asset will come actively. The second part, what tokenization does is it enables global buying and selling. The moment I tokenize it, it can be brought in pretty much, you know, stable coins, CBDCs or any other finance or fiat or any other, I would say, financial instrument can be used to buy it. I would say in a traditional way is, is quite limited and that's a much higher liquidity chase the same class of asset. And the third, as I mentioned, is the whole DeFi angle to it, where you can use that asset class and work with various DeFi financial institutions to create yields, create lend modules, create borrowing modules on those products. And, you know, that basically creates a significantly evolved ecosystem on top of a underlying asset. Do you worry about concentration in the holdings of some of these crypto assets, right? I mean, it's hard to get away and I don't really want to spend a ton of time talking about this, right? But if... It's hard to separate what's happening in the cryptocurrency markets per se from what's happening in the investment markets in which you're trying to have impact, right? Because they kind of get grouped together by the, mm -hmm. by the media, right? I don't, I don't want to do that. But this idea that what's happening in cryptocurrencies, which is, in my mind, highly concentrated, which means it's highly manipulated as well, and we could talk about that later. How do you prevent mm -hmm. that from happening in the fractionalization market too. To be honest, one of the things which we strongly believe is I will not fraction major part of the asset. You know, it will only be a small fraction of the asset that okay. gets fractionalized. So I have 
checks and balances already in place with i would say more traditional financial institutions playing a role in that second part i think the important part is that you know the way the cryptocurrency started uh, crypto industry started with certain i would say rules of the game which is constantly evolving yeah the real world tokenization is a very new phenomenon and you know even in more developed markets it's still kind of it is infancy i think um, as regulations become tighter and especially with some of the recent uh, incidences in, uh, with exchanges i think more and more pure play crypto uh, native um, operations would have to go through lot of i would say regulatory guidance yeah. and that's where the real world asset tokenization plays is because most of the people confuse a pure play crypto with blockchain technology blockchain yeah. is the underlying technology which enables which one of its use cases crypto one of its use cases of the nfts but the i think the real value unlock is you know you have a set of illiquid assets which are you know stable or which have certain financial uh, structures already built in you just make them accessible using technology there is going to be a clear differentiation between the two enabling more people to participate towards a long term wealth creation rather than a very speculative wealth creation is zoth right now an india focused product or is it a global focused product like where's the focus we are into multiple businesses we are uh, currently in creating our base product which work in uh, markets where tokenization as a concept is gray area we have i would say a base plus one level product which works in markets for example more structured and regulated markets yep. like dubai singapore where tokenization has been fairly established and there is a strong uh, i would call regulatory structure behind it yep. zoth primarily works very closely with the regulatory environment and ensures that whatever we do is compliant with our local regulations there but yeah our focus is to operate a product company with a global ambition starting with india and couple of other markets do you want to talk about the regulatory environment in india just for people that may not understand what's happening there and and then tell me like how closely you have to work with the regulators to make sure that your products are all in sync with what's happening there but also because as you said it's a work in progress right it's still really nascent and early so you probably have to work with the regulators as well not to tell them how to regulate it but to show them what's possible too no so i think fintech so there are two parts of uh, the regulations in india i think uh, the fintech regulations are quite evolved in yep. fact sector mindset with upi that has been launched in india which is digital payments yeah and um, i think the regulators here have played a key role because the focus here is always consumer protection so on the fintech side of things it's a very strong structured uh, regulation that's currently available i will go specifically in virtual digital assets i think since this year there has been a taxation structure that has been bought in the virtual digital assets and however the aspect of tokenizing real world asset i would say regulatory framework or structure is still work in progress cbdc india is actually the first country in the world which has launched its own cbdc or the digital currency or only a day ago for the retail users so what i strongly think is that from a regulations perspective lot of things are ev evolving tokenization as such is 
you know it's still a gray area and it's it's getting evolved but i truly think that the current uh, regulatory environment is focusing more towards enabling innovation rather than uh, i would say stemming innovations which is a path in the right direction yeah look you mentioned you mentioned upi i think it's really important the unified payments interface that has been employed in india has just been a game changer no pun intended for the way money moves across the economy in India, and more so because it's really democratized people's ability to to pay. Is, is that fair? And is there a way that you're taking advantage of that as well, plugging into the UPI to make sure that some of the stuff that you can do has both on-ramps and off-ramps to traditional finance as well? A couple of things. I think uh, UPI is a phenomenal success. In fact, uh, uh, when UPI was launched, nobody really was able to gauge the amount of impact it will create. Uh, I think uh, it has been really a game changer during COVID. Uh, you know, many of my uh, colleagues, investors who travel from different other markets, including very developed markets, and we can see the huge adoption of UPI are quite impressed with it. I am. I think... Uh, from, from yeah from our our perspective from very specifically from zoth perspective we are pretty much going to be working with all payments methods and upi being one of them uh, definitely so yeah since we we are integrating with multiple uh, payment methods uh, as we onboard uh, the ecosystem in india can we talk a little bit and i'm so curious about your perspective on this too the central bank digital currencies right cbdc's which you've mentioned it's like a little bit of a slippery slope for me right because the benefits are so huge but the downside is really it's scary a little bit you're smiling a little bit so my feeling here is that and i'm not always right yeah but if money is programmable and if it's issued by a government and that means then the government can then potentially control what you can and cannot buy with a currency that's issued to you so from a social what's the right word i'm looking for from a social innovation standpoint right from a social engineering standpoint if the government's giving money to unemployed or to homeless or whatever they can then control what that money gets spent on per se which can be good or bad I'm just curious if people are yeah. having these conversations around CBDCs, at least people in your group, yeah? Yeah, definitely. I think CBDCs, uh, so first of all, you know, every government issues money. Yeah. How money is printed or how money is done today is completely the prerogative of the government. Yep. I think as of now, what CBDC will do in, is a lot of friction around it. Um, I, I think CBDCs will drive a lot of adoption of the digital currencies and, you know, making it mainstream. But I do agree that there is a strong aspect of privacy because it could be used as a tool to both hamper as well as make uh, significant progress in many areas. But I strongly think that it will be a key enabler of the wider innovation on the blockchain engine. At Zoth, one of the things which we are doing is kind of really working with uh, CBDC as a payment method. However, I I strongly feel uh, feel that you know there would be privacy concerns which people would be uh, concerned about as CBDCs become more common. Yeah. But the flip side, private cryptocurrencies have their advantages, but their disadvantages also, yeah. which we have observed with the recent uh, incidents. So you've brought this up twice. So I just have to ask you about this. What happened at FTX is just like it's a nightmare. 
I think, but not unexpected. If you look at the, you know, we went through the, the, the building of the financial system over time and the, the changes that have happened, right? You go all the way back to wall abroad and then you come up to crypto and fractionalization. And, and frankly, at the beginning of every one of these transitions, there's some idiot out there who decides I'm going to do something. Like, what's the difference between what Bernie Madoff did that took 30 years to figure out and what Sam Bankman-Fried did that took about 10 minutes to figure out? It's the same thing. They're just lying and stealing. Now, the thing yeah. is that what Bernie Madoff did was in the midst of a very well-accepted market infrastructure that said, okay, one bad person inside of something that we've been doing for 100 years. But I'm curious what you think the impact is of what happened with FTX, and then you can go back to May and April this year of Luna and Terra, because that's not what you're doing at all. At no. all. But do you feel like there's this concept of throwing the baby out with the bathwater a little bit, at least today? And can you make the yeah. case that in a way, it's actually okay that this happened? Yeah, so see, there are two things. So as I mentioned, I ran uh, investment networks and we I was part of multiple telegram groups and where, you know, especially during the peak of crypto, people, you know, 1500% gains, 2000% gains in a month and people made money out of it. But was it sustainable? And I think with the bubble bursting across, uh, with the markets going down, with the bubbles bursting across these three incidents, what it shows is that there was definitely a sort of tulip mania that was going on. A little bit, yeah. I strongly recommend and I strongly do not believe in uh, this kind of short-term speculative behavior because, you know, if you look at historically, most of the times it leads to wealth destruction. Exactly. Now, coming specifically on uh, what was done at FTX and what... Uh, the impact it created, I think, see, there are two parts to it. One, uh, FTX and the company and FTX, obviously, the customer's trust towards it. So I think FTX as a company, there were, as the reports are coming, there was very clearly some challenges in terms of how corporate governance was done in the organization, which, you know, it's just very clear that, you know, it's it's not what even a basic corporate governance structures were there now and basically for to the exchange side of things i think some of the things which was done and what reports are coming out i think that's the whole purpose of why regulations started existing you know exactly. you can't really trade money you can't really put them in uh, assets which are risky without their consent right so I think what is will be the impact of such incidents, I think regulations are going to get tighter. And I think it is for the good because cannot always have a wild west, right? No. You need to have a level playing field because at the end, it impacts the whole industry. It, it really hurts both the good players and the bad players. Yeah. And you cannot have people kind of destroying trust in such scale of things. I agree. What part of your time do you think, and I would say before what happened recently, but even afterwards, do you feel like you need to be an ambassador for what's happening for the whole industry? Do you know what I mean? Where part of it is not just saying you need to invest money, you need to invest $100 a month, but you need to invest it in this way and here's why it's different. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so to be honest, you know, my philosophy is that anything that is too good to be true is actually not Right. So when we started with the concept of Zoe, you know, I, I had a chat with multiple investors, multiple, you know, market participants. Yeah. The thing was that, hey, crypto is a very 
volatile industry, lot of, you know, return, higher yield returns are there. But I always believed that, you know, it's not sustainable. You cannot have, you know, such kind of, you know, returns made out of thin air. And yeah. I think that's what is happening. Point. I, I strongly think um, asset tokenization, to be honest, has now coming of age. People see the difference of the underlying asset the underlying value for example in our case even say for example we do not exist tomorrow the underlying assets are secured by a third party setup so it doesn't really matter right. because what happens is that there is an asset that there and you know you that asset has its own value whether Zoth exists or not. I think that's that's the fundamental difference that I would always separate and I would try to preach because most of the crypto industry, as you see, has been driven by Gen Z and millennials who has, maybe this is their first recession or first big downtrend, right. downturn that they are seeing their journey. For me, I started my career when 2008 happened. Oh, no. Then we had 2012 and then there were multiple sessions in between. And what I do think is neither the good times last too long, neither do the bad times. Right. It's important to stick to what you are doing con consistently. And yeah, I mean, uh, it's just been that most of the times, sometimes, you know, even not doing anything seems to be a good idea. So for example, um, we had the opportunity to start Zoth in November of last year, but we decided to postpone it for the simple reason that the whole industry was, was uh, I would say that was the peak of the bull market. And I just didn't see a value that why I have to pay, uh, you know, millions to even build a product. Right. The story is very different today. Yeah. Um, and very different cost structure and cost base. But the reality is that Sometimes timing is everything and you just need to work, wait it out. And yeah, that's what uh, a good investor does. Wait for the opportunity. Yeah. What is the status of Zoth now? Zoth now, I keep wanting to mispronounce the name. Sorry. What is the status of the company now? And how important is it to get the great support of the advisor, the advisory team and the other people that support you? At Zoth, we are currently at pre-seed stage, we are uh, building the core product and we are going live next year. Awesome. So one thing I strongly believe that, you know, you do not make a business on your own. You need to have people who believe in the vision and who can be part of your journey. So for us, our advisors have been kind of our strength. They have been the people who have been showing us the mirrors. And uh, when I started Zoth, I wanted to start with a problem which is difficult enough to be solved. I had an option with my experience in consumer goods just to start any other consumer goods business or right. just start another Web3 mining company and, you know, build another uh, few. The reason we started it because this is a big, huge problem. And as long as you have big, audacious goals, I think uh, you can have people who really believe in that vision and support in your, you in your Yeah, I agree with you. The great thing about real engineers is that they want to solve really hard problems. Part of the issue there is that it's just intellectually stimulating, but it also means that most people won't try to do it, right? Like you said, everybody just wants to build the next Web3 thing that's going to sell a few NFTs, make a little bit of money, and then they can go home. But people that really want to build stuff that are sustainable and you said this before, that are long-lasting, want to build something that's hard because most people won't even try. Is that fair? Exactly. I have built businesses earlier. I have scaled businesses earlier. 
I think the pleasure of doing something long term yeah. and just building it in in a mission that can create real impact. You know, it's way more than anything else. And I, I truly believe in this vision. The next financial innovations would come from tokenization. Yeah. And that's what we... Yeah. I mean, I always like to say that everyone's an overnight success 10 years later. And that's the way I kind of put into words my idea that it just takes time to build something of character and of structure and that's going to last, right? And that everybody wants to get rich. Like you said this right at the beginning, which is what... And I loved it. Everybody wants to get rich quick, but if it feels like it's too good to be true, it is too good to be true. And you may actually make money, but it doesn't yeah. mean you made money in a way that's sustainable because you're smart. You may have literally like just gotten lucky. But if you bought into crypto at 60 grand, well, you still had the right asset, but you had the timing all wrong. Anyway, the last thing I want to ask you is this. I think your LinkedIn header says the future belongs to those who see possibilities before they become obvious. And I like this because when I was a, when I was working on a portfolio trading desk, one of my, and I think this was when I was at Goldman Sachs, one of my favorite investors who was a GIC said to me, the job of a great investor is to anticipate the anticipations of others. Yeah. And I feel like that's exactly what you're saying. Tell me if, tell me if I'm wrong. No, absolutely. I think um, I think I will. I can give you an experience, uh, an opportunity from uh, one of our portfolio companies in the investment network I used to run. It's a company called Bolo Life. They are into short video content creation for multilingual uh, India. India has twenty-two languages yep. and commonly spoken, but only ten percent of the population speaks yeah, less than ten percent of the population speaks English and are fluent in English, but due to the our history and right. past english is the most predominant business language and most used in uh, all communication now this app was primarily focusing on vernacular languages um at that time tiktok was quite big in india and uh, not many people believed in their mission uh, primarily because they saw that, you know, there is no room for you. But I think one of the things which I I've, and our investment network, we strongly believe is that you see the possibilities and we saw the possibilities that as internet is becoming cheaper in India, yeah. as more and more people access internet, there is a huge possibility of tier two and tier three cities, villages where 65% of our population lives will get access to internet for the first time and the first content they will consume is not a Facebook, not an Instagram, but the content which they can relate to, which is in vernacular languages. Right. That platform is one of the fastest growing platforms today and especially they have had a hockeystick kind of a growth post the TikTok ban in India. I think sometimes you just need to make the right bets. We also believe that asset tokenization is this place at the same place now. And with the whole, I would say, market turbulence in the crypto industry and with regulations being tighter and tighter it's people will keep asking the questions where is the real value coming from i think that is the perfect way to end on where is the real value coming from pritam data the founder and ceo at zoth.io thank you so much for doing this today thank you, thank you.